0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org. Good morning. Um, Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Um... And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 on this, the second Sunday of Lent. Uh, Lent is a season of repentance that's meant to lead us to Easter. During the season, we're continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which, if I'm honest, the Sermon on the Mount is a lot like Lent in this exact same way. The Sermon on the Mount, at least, I don't know your experience, but in mine thus far, it leads me over and over again to repentance, which means it leads me over and over again to my need for the resurrected Savior, for, for Christ, the Christ of Easter. Just like Lent, through repentance, leads us to Easter, the Sermon on the Mount is doing the same thing. Just Just take last week as an example when we talked about turning the other cheek, not seeking personal revenge. Like, do you know, how you don't know, I know, how much that is my personal knee-jerk reaction when wronged? Like to seek personal revenge, and I feel very right, very justified in doing so. And Jesus' words last week called me to repentance. But more than that, They they showed me my need to be empowered to have a different reaction. Namely, instead of responding in revenge, responding in redemptive love. Do you remember seeing that last week? Even if you didn't see it or don't remember seeing it last week, you can't help miss it in our passage this morning. Just look at verse 44. Verse 44. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. If that's not the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard in my life. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is not disconnected from the things we've already been seeing Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5. It's not disconnected from the things we saw him say last week. This is where his words, his words from last week about not pursuing personal revenge, this is where they were leading us towards. Instead of responding with revenge, responding like this, responding in redemptive love. Specifically right here, he says towards our enemies, just in case we were wondering if there was anybody excluded from this response. Jesus goes to the very ones where we would be most likely to pour out our revenge, and he calls us to pour out instead redemptive love. This is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of thing that leads me to repentance. Because this is not the knee-jerk reaction of my heart. I mean, I'm like, okay, Jesus, last week, to not seek personal revenge, that's a big ask, and that's one thing, that's hard enough. But now, to instead of just, just defensive action, proactive action, to, to, to love our enemies, I want to be like, let's be real, this seems overly idealistic, it seems out of touch, and for me, it seems out of reach. Anybody else feel the same way? This is the kind of thing that doesn't just lead me to repentance. It leads me to my need for the resurrected Christ because if it is remotely possible in any world to react this way, it's going to have to be by the power provided from Jesus himself. I can't do this. This is impossible. Jesus says with God, all things are possible. I'm like, prove it to me, Jesus. That's what I want to know this morning. I want to know how. How am I, how are we going to be empowered to not seek revenge, but to respond in love? How? I think, I think we see how in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, as Jesus is answering the question, why? That's what he's actually answering in these verses. He's, he's actually unpacking for us why we must respond not with revenge but with redemptive love but here's the deal in telling us why i believe he actually reveals to us how how that's going to happen how not just why we need to respond that way but how we're going to be empowered to not seek revenge but to respond in love so here's the deal dig into this passage with me this morning it's going to take a hot minute for us to dig and claw our way through this thing all right But dig into this passage with me this moment, and then towards the end, we'll be able to step back a little bit. I believe we will see how, how we're going to be empowered to not seek revenge, but respond in love. Begin with me. Verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, uh, if you have been with us, then at least part of what Jesus is saying right here should sound familiar. It should sound familiar because all throughout Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been using this phrase, you have heard that it was said. This is the sixth time he's using it. And, and he keeps using that phrase over and over again because he keeps giving us examples this is example number six. He keeps giving us examples of how the scribes and the Pharisees of his day would take the Old Testament word of God and twist it. They, they would twist it so that it would look like they were keeping it. It would look like they were appearing, at least externally through their actions, they were appearing righteous, all the while being internally filled with unrighteousness. Jesus gives us six examples of how they're doing that and says, that's not righteousness at all. And through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, he is calling us into his kingdom of a righteousness that's greater than that. A righteousness where both internal and external match. A whole person righteousness of affections and actions, all aimed not at my glory and appearing righteous, but aimed at the glory of God. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. That's what he's been giving us examples of, and that's what he's doing right here again in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. He's giving us the sixth and final example that it, it brings all the others together and it sums up everything he's been saying throughout chapter 5. You can see that immediately in verse 43. Because Jesus does do something here that he hasn't done in any of his previous examples. In all the previous examples, yes, he would say, you have heard that it was said. And then he would quote or he would paraphrase the Old Testament command. He does do that here, but he does something more. Listen to it again. You've heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That should sound strange to you. It, not not that you shall love your neighbor part. Right? That should sound familiar. That, that is in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Hate your enemy should sound strange. Because nowhere has that been said to you in the Old Testament. Nowhere is it commanded in Scripture that you are to hate your enemy. So why does Jesus say that? He's he's bringing all of his previous examples together. He's he's summing them up. And he is making all of his points very explicit. Okay? Hang with me. In all of his previous examples, where he's quoted the Old Testament, he's, he's done that, and then subtly... Subtly he has revealed how the scribes and the Pharisees were twisting it by correcting them. He didn't point out specifically. He'd quote the Old Testament and he'd subtly reveal how they're twisting it by correcting them. But now he drops the subtlety. And he explicitly right here states exactly how the scribes and the Pharisees were twisting the word of God. It's it's like he's saying right here, okay, okay, we've arrived at example number six, and just in case you haven't been understanding what I've been doing so far, let me make it abundantly clear. The scribes and the Pharisees are twisting God's word so that they appear externally righteous while being internally unrighteous. So, So let me do this last Old Testament quote as if it said what they actually teach. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's that's what the scribes and the Pharisees actually taught. They used the Old Testament command to love one's neighbor as a justification for hating one's enemies. How does that work? Very simply, all the text says is love your neighbor. So let's let's just define that word, neighbor, and draw limits around love. Only got to love my neighbor. We actually see this happen live fire in scripture, do we not? Remember Luke chapter 10 and verse 29, a lawyer, scribe, Pharisee type comes up to Jesus. Asking what the greatest commandment is, Jesus tells him, first and second, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What does the lawyer ask Jesus? Who is my neighbor? Luke 10.29 says he asked that question actually because he's desiring to justify himself. In other words... Jesus, define neighbor for me. Put some limits around that love because it doesn't include everybody in my thought. And I want to know that I'm okay in hating these and loving these. See, in most pharisaical debates, the limits that they drew around the word neighbor was that just meant other people who belong to the people of God. In other words, other Jews. They used it to draw Ethnic limits around love. I go even further than that. Because they'd reason, you know, I mean, there are Jews, ethnic Jewish people, who, uh, who side with people who aren't Jewish, like tax collectors. I mean, there's some Jews who are pretty big sinners. So they must not be included in this command. They would use it to draw moral limits around love. You I mean, go even further. I mean, there, there are Jews who I guess technically are trying to follow God, like maybe the Sadducees, but we massively have some huge theological disagreements with them. So they're probably not included in this category either, and they would draw theological limits around love. Aren't you glad that we don't do this anymore? Use the word of God? To draw limits around love and who we are or are not supposed to show it to. I was, I was 10 years old, Shades, the first time I heard an usher at my church growing up use Genesis 9 and the curse of Canaan to try and justify the subjugation of African Americans and justify the superiority of white people. I I was. and that is still a live fire hellacious abuse of the text misreading misunderstanding of the entirety of scripture but it is still very much alive and used today people twisting the word of god to draw ethnic limits around who they are supposed to love okay maybe you're like "Ah, i'm not guilty of that we do this to draw moral limits just take a scroll not a stroll but a scroll through christian twitter I'm going to draw limits around people I'm supposed to love based upon their sexual orientation and what they believe about sexuality or what they believe about the sanctity of life. I'm okay to express hate towards them. Shades, Jesus never compromised a single truth that Scripture teaches, and he never failed to express compassion. He didn't use Morality to draw limits around his love. We even do this within Christian camps. Those people don't think exactly like me. They think differently on this issue, that issue, so I can express myself towards them however I want, whatever vitriol, hate I need. We draw theological limits around our... We still ask the exact same question to Jesus and to the Word of God that the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 did. Who is my neighbor? In other words, define for me who it is that I have to love so I can know who it is that I get to hate. Like shades, Do, do, do you see? Do you see? The scribes and the Pharisees took a law about love and made the heart of it hate so they could follow it and look extremely righteous while being internally unrighteous And right here jesus's final example of this he makes explicit what they are doing and he makes his correction explicit and it is explicitly aimed at their heart look at it verse 44 Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus does the same thing he does. Jesus does the same thing right here that he does in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, he responds to the lawyer with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's doing the exact same thing right here. He takes the word neighbor, and instead of using it to limit love, he flips it to make love limitless. Is that not what he taught? Love your enemies. That sentence I said earlier just sounds absurd. Yesterday, uh, my friend Nathan, uh, he texted me. um, We hadn't talked in a little while, and he just asked me how I'd been doing over the course of the week. And I told him that I actually had a stomach bug uh, this past week. Don't worry. I had it way earlier in the week. I'm wearing a mask because yes, there are still people at my house that have just, just keep your distance, people. I promise no one's in the front row, I'm not gonna spit on anybody. We're okay. All right. It was like Tuesday. I'm fine. Anyway, I told him that I had a stomach bug and I was pretty much over it and that I would be preaching on Sunday. He said, I'm gonna read you the text conversation. He said, You preaching on suffering while it's fresh on your mind? I said, No, loving your enemies. So I guess I should be talking about loving the stomach bug. That's that's how absurd Jesus' words sound to us. Actually, love your enemies, if we're going to be honest, sounds even more absurd than love the stomach bug. Like, how in the world am I supposed to love my enemies? Jesus shows us right here, he shows us the heart of it by giving us one specific example. He says, pray. Pray for those who persecute you. I think this is getting at the heart of what loving your enemies looks like. Pray for those who persecute you. In other words, here's what loving your enemies looks like. It looks like desiring the ultimate good of those who desire your ultimate destruction. Looks like desiring the ultimate good. Those of those who desire your ultimate destruction. Those those who persecute you, who take aim at your destruction because of Jesus. You take aim at their salvation because of Jesus. Pray for them. Pray pray for their conviction. Pray for their repentance. Pray for their salvation. Take aim at their ultimate. Good. That's not what I want to do, Shades. That's not my natural reaction. My reaction is not redemptive love. It is a desire for revenge. And, and if I'm honest, I said this earlier, if I'm honest, that desire for revenge, it feels right. It feels right. And if I'm honest, even more so, when I read right here, Jesus' call to respond with redemptive love, that just feels wrong. Well, Why? Why does revenge feel so right and redemptive love feels so wrong? The answer is justice. Just when I've been when you when when we experience being wronged, justice is for things to be set right this is what makes revenge feel right revenge is me taking justice or wanting to take justice usually it's an overreaction and it's vengeance and it gets back at them but this is me wanting to take justice into my own hands wanting to make sure that the wrong is righted but ultimately this simply ends up revealing something about my heart what Let me illustrate it for you. When when I was a kid, I used to get in trouble all the time for hitting my younger brother. I know you have a really hard time picturing me as a violent child, but my brother was five years younger than me, so anyone with a younger sibling totally understands and sees my justification in this issue. All right, but my younger brother, he'd be annoying. Eventually, I'd get upset, and I would just haul off, and I'd punch him in the arm, not in his face. Punch his face, I'd hit him in the arm, and he would go cry to mom baby um i still call him that to his face i ain't scared my mother my mother would get on to me and she would tell me she would be like jonathan why don't hit him just come to me tell me what he's doing i'll take care of it he'll get in trouble instead of you i would respond to my mother this way i would be like that sounds great mom but the only problem is i don't actually believe you I don't believe that you will do anything or that he'll actually get in trouble. So it just makes more sense to me to just punish him myself. Take justice into my own hands through revenge. But Ultimately, this was revealing something about my heart. Namely, that I didn't believe justice would be done unless I did it myself. I didn't believe my mother would deal out justice. Or even worse, I worried that she might show mercy. Revenge, taking justice into our own hands, it reveals something about our hearts that we don't believe justice will be done unless we do it ourselves. For those of us that are believers, that means we don't ultimately believe that God Himself will actually ensure justice. Or, even worse, we're worried that He might show mercy. We call that the Jonah mindset. Remember Jonah? That's the entire reason. He did not want to go preach repentance to the Ninevites. He wanted them to get justice. And he was worried that God might show mercy. This is why. This is why revenge feels right. It feels right because it, it feels like writing a wrong. And redemptive love I mean redemptive love feels wrong. Because it feels like we're saying that wrong was alright. It's okay just sweep the sin and all the pain and destruction that it caused under the rug I don't know about you but these are the Pharisee like instincts of my heart these are the Pharisee like instincts that Jesus is countering with this command he's countering my instincts of revenge with redemptive love but he doesn't just counter my old instinct he empowers the new one how? That was my original question. Told you to take us a while to get there. I'm still asking, how? How are we empowered to not respond with revenge that feels so right? How are we actually empowered to respond with redemptive love? Look at verse 44 again, but let's keep reading this time. Jesus says, And I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, so that, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does Jesus mean? Love your enemies. Do this so that you'll be sons. Does it mean like when I love my enemies, it it makes me into a son of the Father? Some kind of works-based salvation? No, Jesus doesn't mean so that we may be made into sons of the Father as if loving our enemies could earn us the right to be God's children. No, he means so that we may be revealed to be sons of our Father. So that we may be shown that we're really His We really belong to him. I know that's what he means because this verse is an echo of Matthew chapter five and verse nine, where Jesus has already said the same thing. If you want to look back there, it's the seventh beatitude where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers. They shall be called, recognized as actual sons of God. Why? Because they do what their father does. They make peace like God makes peace. You know that God is their father and that they are his child, his son, because there's a family resemblance. We could say like father, like son. And Jesus is saying the same thing right here. In verse 45, look at it again. Those who love their enemies will be recognized as sons of God. Why? Because this is what God does. That's what he says. Verse 45, for he, for God, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, they will be recognized as God's son because they'll be doing what their father does, loving their enemies like he loves his enemies, like father, like son, Jesus goes on, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees do. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's another way of saying, are you even a part of God's kingdom? Jesus has already used reward language for us a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he opened with it all throughout the Beatitudes. And all of the rewards... Or what? It was being a part of God's kingdom that we get Him, true life in Him, now and forever. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the reward. We get Him. We get Christ. But if you're like the scribes and the Pharisees, what reward do you have? Are you even a part of God's kingdom? Jesus says, do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet, that's welcome. Embrace. Go into like partnership with, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? In other words, is this actually a greater righteousness? I, I love it. The, the scribes and the Pharisees who think they are so righteous, Jesus right here takes their actions and says, Do you not see that you do the exact same thing that the people you would call most unrighteous do? Tax collectors. Gentiles, do the same thing. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's why, Jesus says. Here's why you must respond to your enemies, not with revenge, but with with redemptive love. Why? Because that's what your Father does. Therefore, you must be perfect as your father is perfect. You've got to respond like your father responds. You've got to do what he does. Like father, like son. Otherwise, you're revealing that your heart sides with the scribes and the Pharisees. And they may say that they have God as their father, but their hearts do not reveal a family resemblance at all. At least not a family resemblance with God. No, Jesus actually says to them in John chapter 8 and verse 44 to the scribes and Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And you're... <laughs> Hold back for us, Jesus, please. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires like father, like son. Jesus says, this is why, this is why you must respond to your enemies, not with revenge, but with redemptive love, so that you may be revealed as sons who reflect the glory of your Father, so that you'll be salt and light, like he talked about all the way back in verse 16. And people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Like Father, like Son, you reflect who he is. This is why. And I'm like, okay, Jesus, I get why but I'm still asking how. How are we going to be empowered to do this? I don't think I can be perfect like God is perfect. How, Jesus? I think, I think Jesus actually, in the words we just read, I think He actually just showed us how. I told you this in the beginning. I told you, that Jesus was going to answer the question, why? Why must we respond, not with revenge, but with redemptive love? And in telling us why, he would reveal how. How we are empowered to actually do this. So, now, we're here. Finally, we've arrived. Took us 30 minutes, but we're here. How are we going to be empowered... To respond, not with revenge, but with redemptive love. I've got three answers for you, and they build upon one another. Number one, by belonging to the Father. How are we going to respond? Be empowered to respond? Not with revenge, but with redemptive love. By belonging to the Father. If you look back at verses 44 and 45, right there, we just saw Jesus say that loving our enemies reveals that we really are sons of the Father. Right? We saw that? Another way of saying that is it's only possible to love your enemies if God really is your Father. Do you see that? He says you love your enemies. It reveals you really belong to the Father. Just flip that around. The only way you can really love your enemies is if you really belong to the Father. In other words, Jesus is showing us that the power to respond, not with revenge but with redemptive love, comes from God and it's going to flow through us only if we are connected to Him, belong to Him. I have a little garden. I water it every day. The watering through the water hose only works if the hose is connected to the spigot. I'm turning the spigot on all day long I want, but if the hose is disconnected from the spigot, none's going to flow through it. We've got to actually be connected to God if we want love, the kind of love that's powerful enough to love our enemies to flow through us. You've actually got to be connected to the Father. You have to belong to Him. We've actually got to be sons and daughters of the Father if we're going to have His divine DNA, as it were, flowing through our veins. If we are not being empowered to show redemptive love, then first and foremost, we've got to ask ourselves, is that because we've never received it? If I'm not being empowered to show redemptive love, have I ever actually received I can't give what I have not first received. If, if we are not being empowered to love our enemies, is that because we've never experienced God loving us while we were still His enemy? That's Romans 5 and verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Through Jesus and his death, we come to the father. We belong to him and he empowers us by his Holy Spirit. Could it be, could it be that we aren't empowered to show redemptive love because we don't belong to the one from whom that power and love comes? How? Shades, how are we going to be empowered to respond not with revenge but with redemptive love? First and foremost, by belonging to the Father. You've got to actually belong to Him. He provides the power. But that pushes me even a little deeper to ask how exactly does that work? Like, okay, Jesus, what if I actually do belong to the Father? I believe that I'm a real Christian I have faith in him i actually belong to him and i know and i believe he provides the power for me to love my enemies but but jesus i don't always do that i fail at it most of the time i need to see the nitty-gritty practical way that that power gets from his heart to mine because i still struggle so So how? How am I empowered to not respond in revenge, but respond with redemptive love? This takes us to number two. By believing the revelation of the Father. How am I going to respond not in revenge, but with redemptive love? I'm going to belong to the Father first and foremost, but secondly, by believing the revelation of the Father. You see this in verses 45 to 47. In verses 45 to 47, Jesus points us to the, to, both to natural revelation and to special revelation. Are you familiar with these terms? Natural revelation is uh, what the world, the natural world, what the world reveals to us about God. Special revelation is what the Word reveals to us about God, what we wouldn't know unless He told us so. Jesus looks at both of these things. First, Jesus says, look at the world. Isn't that what he says? He says, look at the sun and the rain that your father sends. Sun and rain in an agricultural society, like those are the basic necessities for growing crops. In other words, they are the basic necessities for life. And Jesus right here says, look around. Your heavenly father makes the sun shine on the good and the evil he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust in other words he lovingly gives life to all not just to those who love him but even to those who who hate him jesus says you want to see a revelation of god loving his enemies step outside feel the sun and the rain but he goes even further verse 46 he moves from natural revelation in the world to second special revelation special revelation to say that this is the life where ultimate reward lies a life in loving ones enemies this is the life where ultimate reward lies look at it in verse 46 for if you love those who love you what reward do you have The the implication right here, the special revelation, what we wouldn't know unless he told us so, is that this life that you've just seen modeled by your father of loving your enemies, that's the life where real reward lies. Live another way, what reward do you have? Live the way as the rest of the world? What reward do you have? This is special revelation because we wouldn't know this unless he told us. Just finish it. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If, if I love and welcome only those who love and welcome me, Jesus says, what reward do I have? Honestly, I want to respond and say, uh, Jesus... We kind of have every reward when we do that. Finally, love those and welcome those who love and welcome me. I kind of get every reward. I kind of think that's why the tax collectors and the Gentiles live this way. This is how they avoid a life of pain and pursue pleasure. This is how they make deals and get promotions. This is how they gain political power. It's how they get every reward. I kind of want to say to Jesus, your way. Doesn't work. Turning the other cheek, <clears throat> no reward. Second slap. Hey, you, turning the other cheek, you can't get political power that way. Sacrificing my rights, Jesus, doesn't work. Can't get promoted that way. Loving my enemies, Jesus, it doesn't work. You can't avoid pain that way. No. Loving those who love you, Jesus, that's the way to true reward. And shades, that's true if you think worldly pleasure, political power, and promotions are the reward. But that's why we need the special revelation of God that reveals all of those rewards will simply pass away. Jesus is promising something deeper, something truer, ultimate reward of true life, eternal life in His kingdom where we get Him as the eternal satisfaction of our souls now and forever. Compared with that, can anything else actually even be called reward? And the question is... Do we believe that? Do we believe the revelation of our Father right here? What He's showing us. Do we believe that His way of life that He is calling us to, do we believe that it is actually the way of ultimate reward? That's what He's telling us all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount starts out, remember, with blessed, 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 which we said is the Greek word makarios, which means truly joyful, truly joyful. He's calling us into the life of true joy, which may not look like it here and now on the surface because his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where everything the world values we actually lose, but we gain everything that the world hates, and we gain it now and forever to the ultimate satisfaction of our souls. That's what he's revealing to us. Do we believe that? Do we believe the world? Loving only those who love you and hating your enemies? That's the way. That's the way to get reward, pleasure in life. Or do we believe the way of Jesus? This revelation, what he's telling us, that this is the way of ultimate reward, that's meant to provide power. It's, it's like having steak next to cake on the table. And the world saying cake will satisfy you forever. And Jesus through his revelation goes, don't take the cake, take the steak. It's meant to provide you power. I believe that. I see your revelation and I believe it. So it provides power not to go this way, but to go your way. The revelation from God is meant to provide power, power to respond Not in revenge, but with redemptive love. Let me just give you one example of how this works. The revelation of God. Empowering us, providing the power not to respond with revenge, but to respond in redemptive love. Romans 12, verses 19 and 20 says this. Beloved, is the revelation of God coming to you? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. How, Paul? For it is written. Here's some revelation for you. It's going to empower you to do that. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So what does that empower us to do? Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do you you see how? how Paul believes that the revelation of God will empower us to respond, not in revenge, but in redemptive love. Remember, remember we said revenge reveals my heart doesn't believe justice will be done unless I do it myself? So Paul combats that with God's revelation that he himself ensures justice will be done. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So you don't have to. God promises every wrong ever done to you will be righted. Even in the case where the person who did the wrong repents and He shows them mercy. That sin was not swept under the rug. It was dealt with in the cross of Christ. God ensures perfect justice so we don't have to do you believe that revelation it's meant to empower you to let go of revenge and to respond to your enemies with redemptive love because that is where the ultimate reward of true life is found shades do you see how how we are empowered not with revenge but with redemptive love we are empowered by believing the revelation of the by believing the stake instead of taking the you got to put the stake on the table. You've got to look at the revelation of God. It will fan the flames of your faith and empower you. This leads us to our final answer to this question, number three. How are we empowered to respond, not with revenge, but with redemptive love? We've said by actually belonging to the Father, by believing revelation of the father number three by being transformed to reflect the father these things all build on one another you see that when you actually belong to the father you want to know him you want to see his revelation of who he is what he said what he's promised that stirs up faith so that you believe that and that transforms you You see how these things are interconnected So how are we empowered to respond, not with revenge, but with redemptive love? By being transformed to reflect the Father. That's what verse 48 is all about. Look at it. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect right here is not the best translation of the Greek word teleos. Because for us in English, the word perfect makes us think of moral perfection, which God has, God is. It's absolutely 100% perfect. This, this verse actually echoes an Old Testament dictum. You must be holy as your Heavenly Father is holy. Again, unfortunate because the word holy for us, again, drives us to that place of moral perfection, which, yes, it can mean that and include that, but it means so much more. The word perfect right here is not a great translation of the word teleos because moral perfection is not what Jesus has been talking about in this example right here or in any of the other five examples that he's given us in chapter 5. He hasn't been talking about moral perfection. What's he been talking about? Jesus has been talking about having a righteousness that's greater than the divided righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They want to appear externally righteous while being internally unrighteous. Divided. See that live this divided, split, hypocritical life. Jesus has been calling us to whole person righteousness. I think that's the best translation of teleos right here whole, complete. Therefore, you must be whole as your heavenly Father is. God's heart is not divided. He's not one way externally and one way internally. I can make an argument for you that that is ultimately what lies at the root of the Old Testament word, holy. That God is whole, consistent. That what He does is a true expression of who He is. Just run through the six examples that Jesus has unfolded for us in this chapter. And is not God whole every time in every one of them? First example Jesus gave about how the Pharisees were divided. They supposedly keep the command not to murder, but in their hearts they are filled with hate and unrighteousness. God not only does not murder, his heart is not filled with hate. Second example, God doesn't commit adultery and his heart is not filled with lust. Third example, God does not abandon his bride, the church. No, his love is faithful. Fourth example, God doesn't lie. No, he keeps his covenant oaths. And last example, God does not respond in revenge but with redemptive love. Therefore, now that therefore makes sense. It doesn't just summarize this last example. It summarizes all the examples. Therefore, you behold. As your heavenly Father is whole. You have the greater righteousness, like the righteousness of your heavenly father. That's been his entire argument all the way back from verse 20 where he said, you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? You got to have a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. A whole person righteousness. Here's example. Here's example. Here's example. Here's example. Therefore, you be whole like your father is whole. Be a part of his kingdom. In other words, be transformed to reflect your Father. This is how, shades, this is how we are empowered to respond, not with revenge, but with redemptive love. This is bigger than that, bigger than that. This is how we are empowered to live a life of greater righteousness, where our external actions flow from internal affections. We're not going to do this perfectly, but truly as we pursue God and He transforms us, as we truly belong to the Father, which leads us to want to know Him through His revelation. And as we know Him more, we believe Him more. And as we believe Him more, we are transformed to reflect Him more, like Father, like Son. Shades, do you see how? This is how we are going to be empowered, by belonging to the Father. Believing the revelation of the Father and being transformed to reflect the Father.